0: The following is an adaptation of F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby. This radio play podcast was produced by the Columbus Civic Theater with funding from the Greater Columbus Arts Council, the Columbus City Council, and Mayor Ginther, and the individual support from listeners like you. Please help support this and other projects that serve the community and public around you. Visit www.columbuscivic.org to see how you can help.
1: In my younger and more vulnerable years, my father gave me some advice. Whenever you feel like criticizing anyone, he told me, just remember that all the people in this world haven't had the advantages that you've had. I am still a little afraid of missing something that I forgot the fundamental decencies parceled out unequally at birth. Only Gaspi was exempt from my reaction. Gatsby, who represented everything for which I have an unaffected scorn, had an extraordinary gift for hope, a romantic readiness such as I have never found in any other person. Now Gatsby turned out all right at the end. It is what preyed on Gatsby that temporarily closed out my interest in the board of sorrows and short-winded elations of men. I graduated from New Haven in 1915 and a little later participated in the Great War, after which I decided to go east and learn the bond business. Everybody I knew was in the bond business, so I supposed it could support one more. Father agreed to finance me for a year, and after various delays I came east permanently, I thought, in the spring of '22. The practical thing was to find rooms in the city when a young man at the office suggested that we take a house together in a commuting town, but at the last minute the firm ordered him to Washington and I went out to the country alone. It was a matter of chance that I should have rented a house in one of the strangest communities in North America. It was on that slender, riotous island which extends itself due east of New York and where there are, among other natural curiosities, two unusual formations of land twenty miles from the city a pair of enormous eggs, identical in contour and separated only by a courtesy bay, jut out into the most domesticated body of salt water in the western hemisphere, the great wet barnyard of Long Island Sound. I lived at West Egg, the less fashionable of the two, in a house at the very tip of the Egg, only fifty yards from the Sound, and squeezed between two huge places, the one on my right was a colossal affair by any standard, a factual imitation of some hôtel de ville in Normandy with a tower on one side, spanking new under a thin beard of raw ivy, and a marble swimming pool, and more than forty acres of lawn and garden. It was Gatsby's mansion. My own house was an eyesore, but it was a small eyesore, and it had been overlooked, so I had a great view of the water a partial view of my neighbor's lawn, and the consoling proximity of millionaires, all for $80 a month. Across the Courtesy Bay, the white palaces of fashionable East Egg glittered along the water, and the history of the summer really begins on the evening I drove over there to have dinner with the Buchanans. Daisy was my second cousin, once removed, and I'd known Tom in college, and just after the war, I spent two days with them in Chicago. Tom had been one of the most powerful inns that ever played football at New Haven, a national figure in a way, one of those men who reached such an acute limited excellence at 21 that everything afterwards savors of anti-climax. His family were enormously wealthy. Even in college, his freedom with money was a matter for reproach. But now he'd left Chicago and come east. This was a permanent move, said Daisy over the telephone, but I didn't believe it. I had no sight into Daisy's heart. And so it happened that, on a warm, windy evening, I drove over to East Egg to see two old friends whom I scarcely knew at all. Their house was even more elaborate than I expected, a cheerful, red-and-white Georgian colonial mansion overlooking the bay. The lawn started at the beach and ran toward the front door for a quarter of a mile, jumping over sundials and brick walks and burning gardens. The front was broken by a line of French windows, glowing now with reflected gold, and wide open to the warm, windy afternoon, and Tom Buchanan in riding clothes was standing with his legs apart on the front porch. He had changed since his New Haven years. Now he was a sturdy, straw-haired man of thirty with a rather hard mouth and a supercilious manner. Two shining, arrogant eyes had established dominance over his face and gave him the appearance of always leaning aggressively forward.
2: I got a nice place here.
1: We walked through a high hallway into a bright rosy colored space bound into the house by French windows at either side. The windows were ajar and gleaming white against the fresh grass outside. A breeze blew through the room. The only completely stationary object in the room was an enormous couch on which two young women sat. They were both in white and their dresses were rippling and fluttering. I must have stood for a few moments listening to the whip and snap of curtains and the groan of a picture on the wall. Then there was a boom as Tom Buchanan shut the rear windows and the cot wind died out about the room and the curtains and the rugs and the two women ballooned slowly to the floor. The younger of the two was a stranger to me. If she saw me out the corner of her eyes, she gave no hint of it. The other girl, Daisy, made an attempt to rise, She leaned slightly forward with a conscientious expression. Then she laughed, an absurd, charming little laugh, and I laughed too, and came forward into the room.
3: (laughs) I'm paralyzed with happiness.
1: She laughed again and held my hand for a moment, looking up into my face and hinted in a murmur that the surname of the balancing girl was Baker. Miss Baker's lips fluttered. She nodded at me almost imperceptibly. I looked back at my cousin who began to ask me questions. I told her how I had stopped off in Chicago for a day on my way east and how a dozen people had sent their love through me.
3: Do they miss me?
1: The whole town is desolate. All the cars have the left rear wheel painted black as a morning wreath, (laughs) and there's a persistent wail all night along the North Shore.
3: (laughs) How gorgeous. Let's go back, Tom. Tomorrow. Oh, you ought to see the baby. I'd like to. She's asleep. She's two years old. Haven't you ever seen her? Never. Well, you ought to see her.
2: She is...
1: What are you doing, Nick? Tom Buchanan, who had been hovering restlessly about the room, stopped and rested his hand on my shoulder. I'm a Bond man. Who <laughs> with? I told him. Never heard of them. This annoyed me. You will, if you stay in the East. No, I'll stay
2: in the East, all right. I'd be a goddamn fool to live anywhere else.
4: Absolutely. I'm stiff. I've been lying on that sofa for as long as I can remember. Don't look at me. I've been trying to get you to go to New York all afternoon. No thanks, Daisy. I'm absolutely in training. Thank you. You live in West Egg. I know somebody there. I
1: don't know a single, Miss.
4: You must know Gatsby. Gatsby?
3: What Gadsby? Gatsby.
1: Before I could reply that he was my neighbor, dinner was announced. Slenderly, languidly, their hands set lightly on their hips, the two young women preceded us out into a rosy-colored porch, open toward the sunset, where four candles flickered on the table in the diminished wind.
3: In two weeks it'll be the longest day in the year. Do you always watch for the longest day of the year and then miss it? I always do.
4: We ought to plan something.
3: All right. What'll we plan? What do people plan? Oh, look. I heard it.
1: We all looked. Her little finger. The knuckle was black and blue.
3: You did it, Tom. I know you didn't mean to, but you did do it. That's what I get for marrying a brute of a man. A great Big, hulking, physical specimen of...
1: I hate that word, hulking, even in kidding. Hulking. You make me feel uncivilized, Daisy. Can't you talk about crops or something? Civilization's going to pieces. I've gotten to be a terrible
2: pessimist about things. Have you read The Rise of the Colored Empires by this man, Goddard? Why, no. Well, it's a fine book and everybody ought to read it. The idea is if we don't look out, the white race will be will be utterly submerged. It's all scientific stuff. It's been proved.
3: Tom's getting very profound. He reads deep books with long words in them. What was that word we
2: were? Well, these books are all scientific. This fellow has worked out the whole thing. It's up to us, who are the dominant race, to watch out, or these other races will have control of things. The idea is we're Nordics. I am, and you are, and you are, and you... And we produced all the things that go to make civilization. Oh, science and art and all that, do you see?
3: I'll tell you a family secret. It's about the butler's nose. Do you want to hear about the butler's
1: nose? That's why I came over tonight.
3: Well, he wasn't always a butler. He used to be the silver polisher for some people in New York that had a silver service for 200 people. He had to polish it from morning till night, until finally it began to affect his nose. Things went from bad to worse. Yes, things went from bad to worse until finally he had to give up his position.
1: For a moment, the last sunshine fell with a romantic affection upon her glowing face. The butler came back and murmured something close to Tom's ear. Excuse me, everybody.
3: I love to see you at my table, Nick. You remind me of... of a
1: rose.
3: An absolute rose. Doesn't he? An absolute rose. Excuse me.
1: This is not true. I'm not even faintly Shh. like... It.
4: Don't talk. I want to hear what happens.
1: Is something happening?
4: You mean to say you don't know? I don't. I thought everybody knew. Why, Tom's got some woman in New York.
1: Got some woman?
4: She might have the decency not to telephone him at dinner time, don't you
3: think?
1: Almost before I had grasped her meaning, Tom and Daisy were back at the table.
3: It couldn't be helped. I looked outdoors for a minute, and it's very romantic outdoors. It's romantic, isn't it, Tom?
2: Very romantic. Nick, if it's light enough after dinner, I want to take you down to
1: the stables.
3: We will not talk about stables.
1: The horses, needless to say, were not mentioned again. Tom and Miss Baker strolled back into the library. I followed Daisy around a chain of connecting verandas to the porch in the front. In its deep gloom, we sat down, side by side, on a wicker settee. Daisy took her face in her hands as if feeling its lovely shape, and her eyes moved gradually out into the velvet dusk.
3: We don't know each other very well, Nick. Even if we are cousins, you didn't come to my wedding.
1: I wasn't back from the war.
3: That's true. Well, I've had a very bad time, Nick, and I'm pretty cynical about everything.
1: So, your lovely daughter, I suppose she talks and eats and everything?
3: Oh, yes. Listen, Nick, let me tell you what I said when she was born. Would you like to hear? Very much. It'll show you how I've gotten to feel about things. Well, she was less than an hour old and Tom was God knows where, I woke up out of the ether with an utterly abandoned feeling and asked the nurse right away if it was a boy or a girl. She told me it was a girl, and so I turned my head away and wept. All right, I said, I'm glad it's a girl, and I hope she'll be a fool. That's the best thing a girl can be in this world, a beautiful little fool. You see, I think everything's terrible anyhow. Everybody thinks so. The most advanced people. And I know, I've been everywhere and seen everything and done everything. Sophisticated, God, I'm sophisticated.
1: I felt the basic insecurity of what she had said. I waited, and sure enough, in a moment she looked at me with an absolute smirk on her lovely face. Inside, the crimson room bloomed with light. Tom and Miss Baker sat at either end of the long couch... She read aloud to him from the Saturday Evening Post.
4: He, Thomas A. Mudgett, with all the tools at hand... The lamplight,
1: bright on his boots and dull in the autumn leaf the ages, yellow of her hair, glinted along language. the paper as she turned a page tall, with a flutter of there. slender muscles in Aristotle her arms. Had
4: bent his brow to this
1: when we came in, she and held us silent for a moment with a lifted
4: Aristotle hand. And what had they discovered? Nothing. To be continued in our very next issue, 10 o'clock. Time for this good girl to go to bed.
3: Jordan's going to play in the tournament tomorrow over at Westchester.
1: Oh. You're Jordan Baker, the tennis champ. Now I know why your face is familiar.
4: Good night. Wake me at eight, won't you?
3: If you'll get up.
4: I will. Good night, Mr. Caraway. See you anon.
3: Of course you will. In fact, I think I'll arrange a marriage. Come over often, Nick, and I'll sort of, oh, fling you together. You know, lock you up accidentally in linen closets and push you out to sea in a boat and all that sort of thing.
4: Good night. I haven't heard a word.
2: She's a nice girl. They oughtn't to let her run around the country that way. Who oughtn't to? Her family. Her family
3: is one aunt about a thousand years old. Besides, Nick's going to look after her, aren't you, Nick? She's going to spend lots of weekends out here this summer. I think the home influence will be very good for her.
1: Daisy and Tom looked at each other for a moment in silence. Is she from New York?
3: From Louisville. Our white girlhood was passed together there. Our beautiful white...
1: Did you give Nick
2: a little heart-to-heart out there on the veranda?
3: Did I? I can't seem to remember... But I think we talked about the Nordic race. Yes, I'm sure we did. It sort of crept up on us, and first thing you know...
1: Don't believe everything you hear, Nick. A few minutes later, I got up to go home. They came to the door with me and stood side by side in a cheerful square of light. As I started my motor, Daisy called. Wait! It seemed to me that the thing for Daisy to do was to rush out of the house, child in arms. But apparently there was no such intentions in her head.
3: Wait! I forgot to ask you something, and it's important. We heard you were engaged to a girl out west. That's right. We heard you were engaged. It's libel.
1: I'm too poor.
3: But we heard it. We heard it from three people, so it must be true.
1: When I reached my estate at West Egg, I ran the car under its shed and sat for a while on an abandoned grass roller in the yard. The silhouette of a moving cat wavered across the moonlight, and turning my head to watch it, I saw that I was not alone. Fifty feet away, a figure had emerged from the shadow of my neighbor's mansion and was standing with his hands in his pockets, regarding the silver pepper of the stars. Something in his leisurely movements and the secure position of his feet upon the lawn suggested that it was Mr. Gatsby himself come out to determine what share was his of our local heavens. I decided to call to him, but I didn't, for he gave a sudden intimation that he was content to be alone. He stretched out his arms toward the dark water in a curious way, and far as I was from him, I could have sworn he was trembling. Involuntarily, I glanced seaward and distinguished nothing except a single green light, minute and far away. When I looked once more for Gatsby, he had vanished and I was alone again in the unquiet darkness. About halfway between West Egg and New York, the motor road hastily joins the railroad and runs beside it for a quarter of a mile. This is a valley of ashes, a fantastic farm where ashes grow like wheat into ridges and hills and grotesque gardens, take the form of houses and chimneys and rising smoke. Above the gray land, you perceive... The Eyes of Dr. T. J. Eckelberg, The eyes of Dr. T. J. Eckelberg are blue and gigantic. Their retinas are one yard high. They look out of no face but, instead, from a pair of enormous yellow spectacles which pass over a non-existent nose. Evidently, an occultist set them there on the old billboard to fatten his practice and then sank down himself into eternal blindness or forgot them and moved away. But his eyes dimmed a little by many paintless days under the sun and rain, brood on over the solemn dumping ground. This and other dim sights drew to me as Tom, and I traveled to New York on a sooty train. The Valley of Ashes is bounded on one side by a small, foul river, and when the drawbridge is up to let barges through, the passengers on waiting trains can stare at the dismal scene for as long as half an hour. There is always a halt there of at least a minute, and it was because of this that I first met Tom Buchanan's mistress. Nick, we're getting off. I want you to meet my girl. The supercilious assumption was that on a Sunday afternoon I had nothing better to do. I followed him over a low, whitewashed railroad fence to the only building in sight, a garage. Repairs, George B. Wilson. Cars, bought and sold. And I followed Tom inside. The interior was unprosperous and bare. The only car visible was the dust-covered wreck of a Ford which crouched in a dim corner. The proprietor was a tall, dark, spiritless man, faintly handsome. When he saw us, a damp gleam of hope sprang into his eyes. Hello, Wilson, old man. How's business?
5: I can't complain. Uh, When are you going to sell me that car?
2: Next week. I've got my man working on it now.
5: It works pretty
2: slow, don't he?" No, he doesn't. And if you feel that way about it, maybe I'd better sell it somewhere else after all. I don't mean that. I I just meant...
1: That moment, the thickish figure of a woman blocked out the light from the office door. She was in the middle thirties and faintly stout, but she carried her surplus flesh sensuously. There was an immediately perceptible vitality about her as if the nerves of her body were continually smoldering. She smiled slowly. And walking through, her husband, as if he were a ghost, shook hands with Tom, looking him flush in the eye. Then she wet her lips and, without turning around, spoke to her husband in a soft, coarse voice.
0: Get some chairs, why don't you? So somebody can sit down.
1: Wilson hurriedly went toward the little office, obeying. His wife moved close to Tom. I want to see you. Get on the next train.
0: All right.
2: I'll meet you by the newsstand on the lower level.
1: She nodded and moved away from him just as Wilson emerged from his office door. We waited for her down the road and out of sight. It was a few days before the 4th of July and a gray, scrawny Italian child was setting torpedo fireworks in a row along the railroad track.
2: Terrible place, isn't it? Awful. It does her good to get away.
1: Doesn't her husband object?
2: Wilson... He thinks she goes to see her
1: sister in New York.
2: He's so dumb, he doesn't know he's alive.
1: So Tom Buchanan and his girl and I went up together to New York. Or not quite together, for Mrs. Wilson sat discreetly in another car. Tom deferred that much to the sensibilities of those East Eggers who might be on the train. She had changed her dress to a brown-figured muslin, which stretched tight over her rather wide hips as Tom helped her from the platform in New York. At the newsstand she bought a copy of Town Tattle, and a moving picture magazine, and, in the station drugstore, some cold cream and a small flask of perfume. She let four taxicabs drive away before she selected a new one, lavender colored, with gray upholstery, and in this we slid out from the mass of the station into the glowing sunshine. But immediately, she turned sharply from the window and, leaning forward, tapped on the front glass.
0: I want to get one of those dogs. I want to get one for the apartment. They're nice to have, a dog.
1: We backed up to a gray old man who bore an absurd resemblance to John D. Rockefeller. And a basket swung from his neck cowered a dozen very recent puppies of an indeterminate breed.
0: What kind are they?
5: Oh, all kinds, yeah.
1: What kind you want, lady?
0: I'd like to get one of those police dogs. I don't suppose you got that kind.
1: The man peered doubtfully into the basket, plunged in his hand and drew one up, wriggling by the back of the neck. (laughs) That's no police dog.
5: I know this is not exactly a police dog. It's, It's more of an Airedale. Look at that coat. That's some coat. That's a dog that'll never bother you with catching a cold. I think it's cute. How much is it? Oh, that dog, uh, that dog will cost you ten dollars.
1: The Airedale changed hands and settled down into Mrs. Wilson's lap, where she fondled the weatherproof coat with rapture.
5: Is it a boy or a girl? That dog, uh, that that dog's a boy.
1: It's a bitch. Here's your
2: money. Go and buy
1: ten more dogs with it. We drove over to Fifth Avenue so warm and soft, almost pastoral, on a sunny Sunday afternoon. Hold on, I have to leave you here. No, you don't. Myrtle will be hurt if you don't come up
2: to the apartment, won't you, Myrtle?
0: Come on. I'll telephone my sister, Catherine. She's said to be very beautiful by people who ought to know.
1: Well, I'd like to, but... We went on, cutting back again over the park, toward the West hundreds. At 158th Street, the cab stopped at one slice in a long white cake of apartment houses. Throwing a regal homecoming glance around the neighborhood, Mrs. Wilson gathered up her dog and her other purchases and went hotly in.
0: I'm going to have the McKees come up, and of course I've got to call up my sister, too.
1: The apartment was on the top floor. A small living room, a small dining room. A small bedroom and a bath the living room was crowded with a set of tapestried furniture entirely too large for it tom brought out a bottle of whiskey from a locked bureau door i have been drunk just twice in my life and the second time was that afternoon so everything that happened has a dim hazy cast over it sitting on tom's lap mrs wilson called up several people on the telephone then there were no cigarettes and I went out to buy some at the drugstore on the corner. When I came back, they had disappeared, so I sat down discreetly in the living room and read a chapter of Simon called Peter. Either it was terrible stuff or the whiskey distorted things because it didn't make any sense to me. Just as Tom and Myrtle reappeared, company commenced to arrive at the apartment door. The sister, Catherine, was a slender, worldly girl of about thirty, with a solid sticky bob of red hair and a complexion powdered milky white. Her eyebrows had been plucked and then drawn on again at a more rakish angle, but the efforts of nature toward the restoration of the old alignment gave a blurred air to her face. When she moved about, there was an incessant clicking as innumerable pottery bracelets jingled up and down upon her arms. She came in with such a proprietary haste and looked around so possessively, I wondered if she lived there.
6: <laughs> Do I live here? Nah, I live with my girlfriend at a hotel.
5: Good afternoon, Mr. Good
1: McKee afternoon. was a pale, feminine man Hello from the flat you. below. Uh, I have a seat he had just shaved, enough? for there was a white spot of lather on his cheekbone and he was most respectful in his greeting to everyone in the room. He informed me that he was in the artistic game, and I gathered later that he was a photographer. His wife told me with pride,
7: He's taken my picture 127 times since we were married.
1: Mrs. Wilson had changed her costume some time before and was now attired in an elaborate afternoon dress of cream-colored chiffon. Her personality had also undergone a change. The intense vitality that had been so remarkable in the garage was converted into impressive hauteur. Her laughter, her gestures, her assertions became more violently affected moment by moment.
0: My dear sister, most of these fellows would cheat you every time. All they think of is money. I had a woman up here last week to look at my feet, and when she gave me the bill, you'd have thought she had my appendicitis out. What was the name of that woman? Mrs. Everhart. She goes around looking at people's feet in their own homes.
7: I like your dress. I think it's adorable.
0: It's just a crazy old thing. I just slip it on sometimes when I don't care what I look like.
7: But it looks wonderful on you, if you know what I mean. If Chester could only get you in that pose, I think he could make something of it.
1: We all looked in silence at Mrs. Wilson, who removed a strand of hair from over her eyes, and looked back at us with a brilliant smile. Mr. McKee regarded her intently with his head on one side, and then moved his hand back and forth slowly in front of his face.
5: I should change the light. I'd like to bring out the modeling of the features, and I'd like to try to get a hold of all that back hair.
7: Oh, I wouldn't think of changing the light. I think Shh.
5: it's. I am considering it in silence.
0: I told that boy about the ice. These people. You have to keep after them all the time.
5: I've done some nice things out on Long Island. Two of them we have framed downstairs. One of them I call Montauk Point, the gulls. The other I call Montauk Point, the sea.
1: The sister Catherine sat down beside me on the couch.
6: Do you live down on Long Island too?
1: I live at West Egg.
6: Really? I was down there at a party about a month ago at a man named Gatsby's. Do you know him?
1: I live next door to him.
6: Well, they say he's a nephew or a cousin of Kaiser Wilhelm's. That's where all his money comes from. Really? I'm scared of him. I'd hate to have him get anything
5: on me.
7: Chester, I think you could do something with her.
5: Me? I'd like to do more work on Long Island if I could get the entry. All I ask is that they should give me a start.
6: Neither of them can stand the person they're married to. Can't stand them. What I say is why go on living with them if you can't stand them? If I was them, I'd get a divorce and get married to each other right away. It's really his wife that's keeping them apart. She's a Catholic and they don't believe in divorce.
1: Daisy was not a Catholic and I was a little shocked at the elaborateness of the lie.
6: When they do get married, They're going west to live for a while until it
1: blows over. It'd be more discreet to go to Europe.
6: Oh, do you like Europe? I just got back from Monte Carlo just last year. I went over there with another girl and we didn't stay long. We just went to Monte Carlo and back. We went by way of Marseille. We had over $1,200 when we started, but we got jipped out of it all in two days in the private rooms. We had an awful time getting back, I can tell you. God, how I hated that town.
7: I almost made a mistake, too. I almost married that little kike who'd been after me for years. Oh, I knew he was below me. Everybody kept saying to me, Lucille, that man's way below you. But if I hadn't met Chester, he'd have got me sure.
0: Yes, but listen, at least you didn't marry him. Well, I married him. And that's the difference between your case and mine. Why did you, Myrtle? Nobody forced you to. I married him because I thought he was a gentleman. I thought he knew something about breeding. But he wasn't fit to lick my shoe. You were crazy about him for a while crazy about him. Who said I was crazy about him? The only crazy I was was when I married him. I knew right away I'd made a mistake. He borrowed somebody's best suit to get married in and never even told me about it. And the man came after it one day when he was out. Oh, is this your suit? I said. This is the first I ever heard about it. But I gave it to him and then I lay down and cried all afternoon. She
6: really ought to get away from him. They've been living over that garage for 11 years, and Tom's the first sweetie she's ever had.
1: I wanted to get out and walk toward the park through the soft twilight. But each time I tried to go, I became entangled in some wild, strident argument which pulled me back as if with ropes into my chair. Myrtle pulled her chair close to mine. And suddenly, her warm breath poured over me.
0: It was on the two little seats facing each other that are always the last ones left on the train. I was going up to New York to see my sister and spend the night. He had on a dress suit and patent leather shoes, and I couldn't keep my eyes off him. But every time he looked at me, I had to pretend I was looking at the advertisement over his head. (gasps) When we came into the station, he was next to me, and his white shirt front pressed against my arm. And so I told him I'd have to call a policeman, but he knew I lied. I was so excited when I got into the taxi with him, I didn't hardly know I wasn't getting into a subway train. And all I kept thinking about over and over was, "'You can't live forever.'" You can't live forever.
1: It was nine o'clock. Almost immediately afterwards, I looked at my watch and found it was ten. People disappeared, reappeared, made plans to go somewhere, and then lost each other, searched for each other, found each other a few feet away. Then sometime toward midnight, Tom Buchanan and Mrs. Wilson stood, face-to-face discussing in impassioned voices whether Mrs. Wilson had any right to mention Daisy's name.
0: Daisy, Daisy, Daisy. I'll say it whenever I want to. Daisy, day. Oh! <gasps> oh.
1: Making a short, deft movement, Tom Buchanan broke her nose with his open hand. Mr. McKee awoke from his doze and started in a daze toward the door. When he had gone halfway, he turned around and stared at the scene, his wife and Catherine scolding and consoling as they stumbled here and there among the crowded furniture with articles of aid and the despairing figure on the couch bleeding fluently. Then Mr. McKee turned and continued out the door. Taking my hat from the chandelier, I followed. The next thing I remember, I was lying half asleep in the cold lower level of the Pennsylvania station, staring at the morning tribune and waiting for the four o'clock train.
0: This concludes part one of the Columbus Civic Theater's production of F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby. For upcoming installments, cast bios, ways to donate, and other information, please visit our website, www.columbuscivic.org.